of Micah. The book of Micah is where we are today in our survey going through the Old Testament thus far, and we have, we've made it uh, this far. It's amazing. When we started this journey out, um, I did not know, one, what I was getting myself into, but I also did not realize how much I would, I would gain from this study. You know, I was telling somebody, I've, I've gone through the Bible before, um, several times, gone through the Bible, and um, read it, but never done this type of survey through it. And so uh, it's, it's been a blessing for me. Um, I know I, 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 sometimes in my flesh, I'll say this is just too much work. I'm tired. I need to stop. Um, but then I will remember how much, how much richness from the Word has been poured into me over the last several months. So I want to thank you all for keeping me um, uh, in the Word as much as you do. Um, I'm trying my best to bring you the best I can bring. And so uh, here we go, Book of Micah. Uh, this is a shorter uh, book. It's not too long, just a few chapters. Um, we got about seven chapters in the Book of Micah. And uh, we don't have about seven. We have seven chapters in the Book of Micah. And in those seven chapters are some beautiful, beautiful words. Um, we know a couple of things about Micah. And so uh, just to, to give you a little background, a little history about who he is and what he's doing. He is from a place called Morsheth. Uh, Morsheth is where he is from, as it says in the very first verse there in the book of Micah. Um, and so a few things to note about that. Uh, Morsheth is a place of um, more like farmland. Okay, So he was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a little bit older than Micah. And Isaiah was um, a prophet. He was, he was the big city prophet, right? Isaiah, if you remember much about Isaiah, uh, he was the one who had the ear of the king. He was, he was a little bit older. He, had, uh, he, he was really from the court, from the high-ranking high officials uh, was Isaiah. Micah, on the other hand, um, even though Isaiah was of this high-ranking, he had the ear of the king, Micah was this, um, uh, he was a little bit younger. He, had a, uh, he was from the countryside. He wasn't from the high-ranking officials. He had the ear of the people more so. Um, the, the, the rural areas. Morsheth was a place that, uh, if you can imagine it, um, you can imagine pastures and, and streams and uh, red clay soil that was very, very fertile. Uh, it was a place that produced a lot from the land. And so the people that lived there were farmers and people that were lovers of the soil and the ones that would take care of their property and the place that they lived. And the reason that's important, the more I've done study on the book of Micah, uh, specifically for today, um, there's a lot that comes out in his, in his words and in his prophecy that I believe were kind of put in there early on. I believe the Lord, you know, he, he brings up and he'll use any circumstance in your life. He'll use your whole story if you allow him to. Micah came from this place that I think of as just a land of fields. That's what I think of. Um, in fact, today I have titled this, this is one of, and I know I say this, this is one of my favorites for a few reasons. Uh, one, if you were here three years ago, in, in December of 2020, I was, um, I was allowed, I was brought in to preach on a, on a Sunday night here. Um, my dad was the pastor, and he did a thing where it was like six or eight weeks or something where he brought in uh, uh, these, these young preacher guys, you know, like, um, to come and preach. And I, had, uh, I was in between churches at the time, or I was about to start my ministry. I had left uh, the church I was at and starting a ministry, and so I had, I had plenty of free time. I didn't have to be at a church that specific week. And so he, uh, he called and asked me to come and preach a kind of a Christmas sermon. 
And so I preached a Christmas sermon, and uh, it, came, it originated out of the book of Micah. And I love, 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 love something I'm going to share with you today, one of my favorite things of all time. I experienced it firsthand when I was in the Holy Land. I saw the place, and when, when you go to the Holy Land, you, you begin to see things not just, you know, I, I can read a lot. I can read a lot. I can, I can even comprehend what I'm reading. But when I was walking in the Holy Land and I was out and seeing it, it was like it was all coming to life. Like it wasn't just words on a page anymore. It was like, this is where they were talking about. And I see now the landscape and it changed my perspective. And so Micah is a guy who I, I've titled it from the fields to the fields because there is prophetic words uh, from where he came from in Morsheth, the fields of this area in um, uh, Palestine, uh, into his prophecy that pointed toward Bethlehem and specifically the fields outside of Bethlehem. Uh, He talks about these things. And now he was prophesying to something he did not fully understand and he couldn't fully um, uh, tell you every single uh, piece of what would happen in that little town in Bethlehem, but he told you exactly what the Lord wanted the people to know. And so uh, Micah was a a very unique individual. I love his book. My life verse, the verse that uh, when I was 16 years old, the Lord sealed this verse on my heart uh, comes from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse number 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I filter a lot of things through that very verse. Am I doing justly, or am I doing what's right? That's what that means. Um, am, I, am I loving mercy? Am I showing that I was shown mercy to others? And then walk humbly. Am I walking to, to give myself glory? Or am I walking to give God glory? And so I love that verse. I love this book. It's been a, a, a very pivotal book in my life. Um, and the more I've expounded through this today, the more excited I have even gotten to, uh, to share it with you. So uh, Micah is this guy. He was um, born in this, uh, and, and raised in this Morsheth. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, so he was specifically about the southern kingdom of Judah. There was some times he mentioned the northern kingdom. He mentions, mentions Assyria. Now, the time Micah was prophesying is the time the northern kingdom, finally, uh, uh, Samaria was sieged, and the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. So the, the nation of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, uh, fell and were captured and seized during Micah's uh, ministry years. Okay, so that plays a part into what he's thinking and saying, right? Because he's seeing what's happened to the neighbors at the north. And so he's able to share with, the, with his, his home uh, crowd there in the south. And he's able to even reference some of that. Like, this has happened up there. It's, happened. it's going to happen here. We are, we're going to have this same doom because we've failed uh, our, our God. And so a few things that we need to know about uh, Micah. He prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now that just gives us the time frame, right? Just the same contemporary of Isaiah. And so that same time frame. Um, And during that time frame, it tells us a few things going on in the nation. Uh, The nation was very prosperous. If you remember, Isaiah talked about his ministry started the year King Uzziah died. King Uzziah's reign brought a lot of prosperity, a lot of plenty. People were getting very wealthy. Uh, and for the first time in, in this, since uh, Solomon's days, 
the nation was very, very wealthy, and they didn't have to worry about that day's meal. They didn't have to worry about what they would eat that week. They had plenty. They had more than they could need. And in Morsheth specifically, this is some of the most fertile land over in the Holy Land area, in the Palestinian area. And so they were, they were producing more crops. There is, there is, they say that even today, that piece of property over there will produce seven times, seven harvests per year. It's just wild. Like, how is it producing so much per year? Because God said, that's my place. That's my territory. And I'm going to give it to my people and it's going to be productive. So this area of Morsheth is a place that was farmland, uh, a countryside. I almost picture it. You see streams running through it. You almost see in the morning time, you see some cattle grazing. You see the dew just kind of falling and it just feels calm there in Morsheth. It's a countryside that's not big city. There's not a lot of people coming and putting industry there. There's not a lot of big merchants coming in to Morsheth and building up big cities. So it's a simple life. And then I started thinking, what happens in rural areas where people care about their property, where people care about the place they love? And then I started remembering something. Um, my, you know, I have, I've had a lot of... Um, uh, older people in my life that have poured some wisdom into me. And one of the things I've learned about people that own a lot of property that take care of the property is if somebody were to go and say, I'm going to take your property away, that person is going to say, no, you're not. Go away. And they're going to say, no, we're gonna, we, you owe us some of your property. And they're going to say, I don't owe you anything. Get out, of my, get out of my property, right? They're going to protect what's theirs. They're going to protect what they love. And as we, as we think through that, I can almost picture the men in Morsheth being that type of men because it was producing a lot and the families uh, loved the place that they were at. They loved their land. They loved what God had given them. And so because of that, the men were strong and they were protective and they were unwilling to, um, to let the enemy uh, take over. And here's, but here's what was happening in the culture that we know. The enemy is coming in. They've, they've taken down the northern kingdom. The, the men in this town can see the enemy getting closer and closer and closer. So I'm watching as these guys in the pages of the scripture are getting more defensive, right? They, the enemy can come this far, but no further. This is my home. This is my land. This is my crop. This is my, I've worked for this. This is something that I have, have fought my life for and fought my life to see if I can protect it. So... These, uh, so, so it kind of gives you a little picture of Morsheth. And uh, Micah, specifically, from that place, understood it. And he used some of that as a little bit of, of a, uh, I won't call it leverage, but as an illustration so that the people would understand the severity of their personal lifestyles. Micah's name means who is like Jehovah. I love that, uh, that name, uh, who is like Jehovah, because if, as we know the answer to that question, there is none like Jehovah. Uh, Micah is a walking example of that. In this, um, and and his, his prophecies, his words are very much so, there's nobody like this God. You're not dealing with an enemy. You're not dealing with an, a person that's just against you. You're dealing with God and God himself. And so he's talking to people in a very wealthy environment, okay, a very high producing environment. And um, one of the things we will see in Micah's uh, prophecy is he denounces the wealthy pretty hard because what happened? 
when they got money and financial influence, they began to oppress the poor. That's what was going on. They began to oppress the poor. They would do things, in fact, and nobody was immune to it. Widows and orphans were being oppressed by the rich. Uh, And what we'll find in just a little while, we'll see that it was from landowners to judges, people that were in political offices, people that were farmers. If you got wealthy, you began to just start oppressing those who were poor, and then you leveraged that to gain more for yourself. Micah attacks that very, very hard. He is a he is a very focused guy. He says this is not okay. Um, and so uh, again, during his stint, he sees a lot of things happen in his life. He sees the northern kingdom fall, and so uh, he knows that the southern kingdom is going to fall as well. So let's jump right in. Uh, I want to look at each of these. Um, I'm going to look at chapter one, then we're going to look at pairs of chapters um, throughout this book. Chapter 1 in the book of Micah, he uh, begins to um, tell what's coming. That's what I titled this chapter 1, What's Coming. Um, He begins to explain what is going to happen. It's a very powerful, powerful chapter. Um, This is what's coming our way. And I love how he says in verse number 2. Here's something I want to make sure that we understand. Um, Israel, the, the people of God, whenever God crafted a nation... The reason that he made Israel into a nation was so that Israel would display who God is. So wherever Israel went, they were to show the characteristics of God. They were to show the grace of God. They were to show the the power of God. They were also to to show the government of God, the way God governed the people. Israel was a walking example of, to the rest of the world, this is Jehovah, and there's none like him. Micah's name is who is like Jehovah. The people of God were supposed to be walking examples to say there is none like Jehovah. You can look at us, God's people, see how his grace has brought us through, see how his mercies are never ending, see how his love is continually giving, see how his government and structure ultimately points to him. That was Israel's purpose for being a nation. However, listen to what happens when Micah starts this uh, this telling of destruction. In verse number two, he says this, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Verse number two, is uh, it shows me something. I never saw this before until this full survey happened. And, and part of it is because we've been going through this whole Bible together. And I, I'm beginning to see a compounding effect. This is, getting, this is getting richer and richer as we go. I hope you're gaining and gleaning the richness of what this scripture is doing. Because if Israel's ultimate purpose was to show everyone else, to display to everyone who God is then whenever Israel gets punished, God says, now I'm going to make a display of you. And I want the whole world to see it. So Micah begins this prophecy by calling everybody's eyes to look in at us. He says, listen, there is going to be a problem. God is going to rectify what we broke to show the world. Because here's the deal. Israel, your job is still to display who God is. So you either will display it or you will be displayed by it. 
You are either going to be the one that shares it, or you'll be the one that is the example of it. So Micah calls the entire world, look in, watch this. Israel has rejected this God, and because of that rejection, and because of... And and, and here's the thing. Ultimately, and I don't want to really land here, but ultimately, uh, Israel has an identity crisis. Their purpose is to be what God called them to be. They abandoned that purpose when they said, we want other things. We don't want to keep going to this God. We want to allow the world to come into us. And because of that, they abandoned their calling to display the Lord on on this beautiful stage. And instead, they will be the display of the judgment of God. And, And Micah wants the whole world to see it. Why? Because a man that is in love with Jesus, a man that is in love with the Lord and that is in his hand and being used by him, understands if God's not on display, this is useless. This is pointless. If you don't see God, you don't, you don't, it's, this is not worth coming to. This is not worth showing up for. Instead, Micah says, I want everybody to pay attention. This is going to happen. And then, uh, as, we, as we go down the, the list, beginning in verse 10, um, he does something very interesting. I love from verses 10 to verse 15. Because he names 12 cities. Now he's, again, Micah is prophesying to uh, what the Lord is going to do, the coming judgment, that's that, what's going to happen. And, and if we read this in our English vernacular, if, if we read this in our language, the Bible says in verse number 10, for instance, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethlehapara, roll yourselves in the dust, pass on your way inhabitants of Sapphire. Now, as we read that, we're like, okay, that's some, that's some interesting language. What Micah has done through the Holy Spirit's instruction is each of these cities, he names 12 cities, each of these 12 cities are known for something. They have a, a, a characteristic about them. In fact, the city of Gath is literally is called Tell Town. Like, it's the town where you would tell things. It's, it's the information place. It's the place where, you know, news would be heralded. If you look up um, Bethlehapara, it is a place of weeping. So it's a place where you could go and you could weep and it would be okay to weep. It would be okay to mourn there. It would be okay to, uh, you would be accepted in that town. It was a loving community that would let you crown its shoulder, right? And then you've got uh, Saphir. Um, Saphir, um, or Aphara, I'm sorry, uh, is, a, uh, is a place that um, is uh, uh, a, a place that you can, um, it's, it's a dust town. It's a town of, of barrenness. It's a town of, of, this is where you can come outside of the fertile lands, outside of the place. This is a place that's a dusty place. And, and it's, it's, here's what Micah has done as he's explaining these cities. He's making each city, what it's known for, a terrible curse. So in Gath, Tell Town, he says, there'll be no talk in Tell Town. He says, there'll be no weeping in Weep Town. You can roll in the dust in Dust Town. You can just, it, there's, no, there's no stirring it up. There's no walking around it. You've got to roll around in it. He goes through each of these, and as he goes through each of these, 
he goes to, uh, Sapphire is beauty, by the way, and he says, uh, pass on your way, inhabitants of Sapphire. <laughs> he says, there's no beauty. Beauty will be shamed in beauty town. He goes through 12 cities. He, he lists all of these, and as he breaks them all down, um, he, he explains that what you were once known for is going to be a mockery. You're going to be mocked for what you were once strong in. He goes through these things, and we, we see this is, this is mean. He's making a joke about the town. Now, he's not making a joke. God is bringing judgment that's going to make them a display to the world that God will not be mocked is what he's doing. So God is saying, I will make what you are known for, and I will mock it in front of everybody because you think you did this on your own. You went and tried to do all of this without me. So I'm going to turn your city and what your city is known for into a joke to all of the world. They're going to look at you and say, what, what, is, what is this about? This doesn't make any sense. A dozen towns and a dozen tragedies. That's what chapter 1 is filled with. Um, prophets aren't, aren't usually loved in the scriptures, you know, whenever the, in their towns. Uh, you know, it's going to be hard to go to um, uh, the, the neighbor town, uh, Zainan, and say, um, there's no neighbors in the streets in neighbor town. You thought you were the friendliest place around. Now, because everyone's ashamed, they won't walk out of their homes. This is a, not, you know, you, my guess is Mike is not going to show up to Zainan and be like, hey guys, how are you? They're going to be like, uh, no, you've made a mockery. You've made a pun out of my city. Why would I let you in here? But he's saying, this is what, I'm not making a pun of it. It's God. You, you rejected him and therefore his judgment's coming. This is what is coming. And then chapters two and three, he tells why it's coming. This is crucial. This is vital. Um, in, uh, it says, he, he focuses on uh, who is responsible for the judgment that is coming. So first he talks about what's coming, the coming destruction. Then he talks about why it's coming in chapters 2 and 3. And here's what he says, you know, from, as we talked about earlier, from judges to landowners, there was an oppression of the poor. And here's something that we need to understand. In, under the Mosaic law, Here's something very vital to our information and understanding. Under the Mosaic law, the people, their families, had land, okay? And under the law, that land, was it belonged to those families. You could loan it out or lease out your land. Let's say, let's say uh, your neighbor over here needed a bigger piece of land because their cattle or their sheep were too many. So you could lease your land to that person. But you could only lease it for up to 50 years. And then at the 50-year mark, the, all the land returned back to the original families. So, because ultimately this is God's land that he's giving, and he's giving it specifically to these families. That was what was happening under the Mosaic Law. Well, in Micah's day, because all of the, the property values had, gro had grown, the uh, increase, the, in, the influction of everything, because people were making more money, more prosperity, therefore there's more to be shared and more to be had, and whoever got more uh, ended up oppressing those. So they would take land away from families that couldn't afford it. We see it happen all the time, right? We see someone with a lot of money look at someone with a little money, and they're saying, I'm in a bad spot and I can't afford to get out. And so they say, well, I'll loan you the money at a high interest rate. And then this person can't afford to pay it all back, right? And then this person that has been loaned the money 
is handcuffed. The slave is, the, the lender, the, the, the one who's lended to is slave to the lender. I cannot get out of this. That's what was going on. Micah saw it, and in chapters 2 and 3, he calls it out. He says, look, some of you that are owning land are oppressing those who, uh, who, should, who have the rights to the land, and yet you are doing things that are keeping the land from them. And you're walking haughty in it. You're walking prideful and arrogant. You think because you've got more money that you're better than this person. And it didn't matter. It, again, no one was able to get out of it. It was all. Uh, it, it was. It was a bad spot, and it was a, um, a tough, tough place to be. In verse number six, uh, listen to what he says in chapter two, verse number six. Uh, Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. The people, uh, when Micah was going around and saying this prophecy, there were people that were telling him to shut his mouth. They said, shut up, preacher. We don't want you to call some kind of judgment down on us. Just because we've done well doesn't mean that, we've, that we're cursed for it. And Micah says, no, it's not just because you've done well. It's because you're treating others poorly, and God loves those people that you treated poorly. It's, they're his people too, and you've taken advantage of them. You've done things that have, have pushed them. Uh, you've, you've, you've gone too far. You've done too much. Uh, to, to, and you know why this is? The reason people would say this is because if you have enough money, you can pay somebody to go say anything you want them to say. So the rich end up paying people to go and yell at the preacher. You know, I, I've, I've found it to be a, a pretty funny thing. Whenever somebody gets mad at a preacher... Uh, it's not typically, typically, the person doesn't just come straight to the preacher. They will go to somebody else. They will talk to somebody else. And then that somebody else will end up coming to the preacher. And it hasn't happened to me here, none of that. But uh, I've, I've heard it, heard the stories. It hasn't happened to me yet. <laughs> I hope it doesn't. Uh, but in, in a lot of places, because somebody that wields power will use someone that doesn't feel as powerful, right? That's what was happening in Micah's day. And Micah calls it out in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he goes on and talks about the judges. You know, the judges in the time were taking bribes. And as they would take bribes, they would, they would uh, go all the way around. They would circumvent the law to take care of the rich. Does that sound familiar at all? Like, I'm like, this is, I, I feel like I'm reading a newspaper today. Like, this is what's happening. This is going on because the rich are getting richer and they are getting out of things and the poor are being oppressed. So the judges would accept these bribes, go around the law and benefit the rich and it would hurt the poor. Even, and especially the widows and the orphans were getting, were getting beat up through this process because a widow or an orphan couldn't take care of themselves. They didn't have the money to go and bribe the judge. They couldn't get in the same room with the judge. Yet the wealthy business owner could come in the, the, the judge's table, drop however much money on the table, and say, hey, I need to get out of this, this issue that I'm in. And they would say, no problem, we'll get you out of it. This was going on. Micah begins to call it out. He's told, um, as we look through that <laughs> the chapters 2 and 3, um, money and financial power are what put them in an unholy mindset. And because of that, God would remove it. God would remove the money. If you look and see Assyria ended up spoiling, taking all the spoil of the northern kingdom, and Babylon would come and finish up the southern kingdom. What that means is the entire nation was about to be broke. Because Micah says, 
Whenever you gained all this financial power, you thought you were more important and more valuable than God himself. And so what God's going to do is say, you think money is what's going to keep you at top, on the top? Then I'll just pull the money right out from under you. I'm going I'm to use the world to take away what you think you gained on your own, but what I was blessing you with so that you would be a blessing to others. Do you remember whenever God told Abraham he would be a blessing to people? And do you remember the two times that Abraham went to Egypt, whenever he went to Pharaoh, whenever he went to uh, the, the, the leadership and all that? He was a curse to the people. Why? Because he went in sin. He did something that disobeyed God. God has called him to be a blessing. He's called Jacob and Israel and the people of God to be a blessing to other nations. How are they to be a blessing? To show them who God is. Because God is the ultimate blessing. It's not money. It's not riches. It's not influence. It's not military power. The blessing is God. He is the blessing. So he tells his people, I want you to go and be a blessing to others. So in other words, reflect me so others see me so others can be blessed by my presence and who I am. And instead, Israel said, we're going to make all of this financial gain be a blessing to us. And God says, no, 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 that's not what this is about. So Micah calls this out. Whether he says financial influence is going to be ripped out from under you, and we will see. So then, first, chapters 4 and 5. So if we see what the problem is in chapter 1, if we see who's the cause of the problem in chapters 2 and 3, so why, why the destruction is coming... Chapters 4 and 5 give us a little more about who is the solution to this problem. Now is whenever our friend Micah uh, begins to look way past what the destruction is. What's the solution here? Well, as, as I said a minute ago, if God is the blessing, then God is the solution. And how is God going to come to man and give the blessing? Well, he's going to bring it himself. That's what he's going to do. And so in chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Micah, uh, in fact, in chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3, mirror in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. If you read those two passages, they're the same. Now, I wonder who said it first. They were contemporaries of each other, right? So did Isaiah say it first or did Micah say it first? Which one said it first? The, the Bible says, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people, all people, shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out, Zion, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Uh, you be judged by many people. You, you can read those verses. You can go and read them again in Isaiah. And I realized something. It doesn't matter who said it first. What matters is it's in the Bible twice. You know, anything gets repeated in the Bible is probably something that's important. It's probably something that's, that's valuable for us to understand and us to know. And so as I look at it, uh, as I read it, there is a heavy prophecy here talking about something that is emphasized. It's almost like whenever I make my notes, I don't know if you can see this, when I make my notes, I will put highlighters on places that I want to make sure get the emphasis that is needed, right? And so most of the time, I highlight places that are, um, to me, uh, like, okay, I want to make sure and say this and say it with enough emphasis because when I experienced this or when I found this in the Scripture, I had this overcoming sense of, like, peace 
or I had this overcoming sense of like power that I just experienced something that wasn't of man, right? And so I will highlight it. So anytime there's something repeated in the scripture, I feel like it's God's highlighter saying, be sure that you know that this is important. And what's he talking about here? He's talking about the one that is to come. He's talking not just about um, some prophecy that's happening. He's talking about the God who's about to show up. That's what he's talking about. So we look at these two chapters, um, and he, be- he begins in this, with this phrase. What he does, he changes from, okay, there's some destruction and disaster coming. It's judgment. It's going to be hard to deal with. Then he says the reason is because of s- the sin of our people. It is not because God left us. It's not because God hates us now. It's not because God is forgiving, forgetting his promise. It's because we sinned, we messed up, it's on us. Then he changes. Right here, he goes into a hope of restoration. So he uses the same term that Isaiah uses in chapter 2, and he's telling us there is a coming restoration. So pay attention, open your eyes, let's see it. And then, 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 in verse number 8 of chapter 4, this one is the one. This one's my verse. Because here's where I found something. This is uh, the day of restoration is coming where there'll be uh, no fighting, no more. There is a day coming that there'll be no swords. He even talks about the first couple verses of chapter 4. Swords will become plowshares. Uh, Swords will become uh, tools, instruments in the the gardens and uh, these spears will be gardening tools and it's it's going to be a place where there's no more war there's no more fighting well how is that going to happen how is how is how are we going to get to the point because here's the deal we've seen assyria take the northern kingdom now micah is telling his fellow farm farmers and farmhands hey guys there's a day coming when all those weapons of war are going to be used for farming equipment a tank will be a tractor that's what he's saying. All these, these fighting instruments, these tools that are used to destroy us are going to be used, are going to be what we use to bring more life to the soil that we love. He says, how is that going to happen? Well, chapter 4, verse number 8 says this, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter Zion, you shall, uh, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, the kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. That is a prophecy, prophesying to a place. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in here. I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to anyway because I'm too excited about it. So in, in this term, uh, O Tower of the Flock. O Tower of the Flock is Migdel Eder. Eder. Migdel Eder is the term. It's the same term that's used in Genesis 35, verses 19 through 20 and 21, which is the place that Rachel um, had died and was buried. Now, this is a road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Okay, and outside this road, there's a, there's a tomb of Rachel there, uh, and so she's there in this place, and in this um, uh, uh, in, in this prophecy, it talks about that specific spot. Now, if you were to go to the Holy Land today, today, if you go to the spot that's Migdal Eder, the, the the place in the Old Testament that from the book of Genesis we find it, and this is a prophecy in the book of Micah. To this place, most Jewish uh, uh, people believed, most Hebrew scholars believed that this is the verse that talks about where the Messiah would first be heralded. So it would first be proclaimed in this place. So in the tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter Zion, to you it shall come. So 
to you. you you're going to be the one that gets proclaimed to the Messiah is here. All right? I'm getting chills because I know it's about to happen. Oh, this is good. So the, the, if, if you're a scholar of the Old Testament, if you're reading, reading this with Jewish Hebrew eyes, what you see is this place, O Tower of the Flock, is the place that you're going to hear the Messiah has come. Now, so fast forward. In the New Testament, whenever you're reading in the book of Luke, the Christmas story, it says that there were shepherds out near Bethlehem in watching, keeping watch over their flocks by night. The, the place they were at is a short distance from Bethlehem, in between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, which is a place that priestly shepherds, that means shepherds that were raising sheep that would be sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem. Travelers would go past the tower of the flock, Migdel Eder, and they would go there and they would, they would purchase sheep to be taken to sacrifice. And so the shepherds that were the ones in this field that were keeping watch over these flocks were, were, were not just any shepherds. They were shepherds that would inspect the sheep to make sure they were worthy of sacrifice. Okay, you follow with me so far? So these are shepherds that were very specific to uh, making sure that sheep were blameless or, or without spot so they would be worthy to be sacrificed. So um, if, if this is true, okay, if, if this is the place uh, in, in Micah chapter 4, verse number 8, to you, O tower of the flock, it shall come. The former dominion shall come, the kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. This is the place. Do you know the first place that it was uh, mentioned that Jesus is here was to the shepherds that night in those fields? And the priests, because I began to think, why in the world would those shepherds leave their flocks? Why would they, just, why, why would they do this? Because they knew that this shall be a sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Why is that a sign? Why would that be a sign? The baby's wrapped in a, in, in a cloth. Most babies that are born are wrapped up. It's the fact that he was lying in a manger. Do you know when a priestly shepherd would, um, would, would be there the moment a sheep, a lamb, was, give, was, was born, what they would do is they would take that lamb and they would wrap it up real tight and lay it over in the feeding trough in the tower, the watchtower in the shepherd fields. And when they would do, they would do that for a couple of reasons. One, if a, if a lamb was first born, it would try to start walking. And if it would try to start walking, sometimes it would stumble. It would scratch its, its leg. It would have a little cut. Then it wasn't worthy for sacrifice. So whenever a shepherd would deliver this lamb, they would wrap it up real tight and lay it in a feeding trough inside this tower until the lamb had calmed down and it could slowly unwrap it and then begin to inspect it and then allow it to start walking after it kind of got its sorts together. So these shepherds in this field where they believed that this was going to be the place that the Messiah was heralded for the very first time are out watching their flocks by night and they hear the angels say that there's good news. In the city of David, in, in, in Bethlehem, the, the Savior is born. And here's the sign for you. He is the one that's going to, to nullify your job. You're no longer going to have to wrap up these lambs every single time because there's going to be no need for these sacrifices anymore. That's how you're going to see this king 
And it was proclaimed and heralded in those fields just outside Bethlehem, Euphrata, which is what we will see in just a few moments, a very specific Bethlehem. There's two Bethlehems, by the way, but there's one specifically that prophecy said is the one that they're going to be, that Jesus is going to show up in and he's going to be heralded in. That was a bonus. I'm so excited. Anyway, we keep going. So uh, he looks at after this verse. So he now looks, why do you cry out loud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? Is the pain seized like a woman in labor? He goes into this, um, uh, these two enemies that come after this. So basically what Micah has done, what the Holy Spirit has done through his words is say, uh, listen, there's coming destruction. It's going to be bad. Here's the reason why. But my answer is I'm going to send the Messiah. And that Messiah is going to come and he's going to redeem it all. He's going he's to redeem. He's going to put all this back in order. You all messed it up, and, and the one's coming to, to organize and reorder and put it all right back where it's supposed to be. And so he's about to talk about these two enemies. So he talks about this uh, like a woman groaning in labor. The reason is because he's now talking about when Babylon is going to come and destroy Jerusalem and, and seize Jerusalem. And so it's like a woman in labor pains. Here's what he's saying. It's not happening yet. It's going to take some time. It takes a hundred years from the time he says this for Babylon to actually take over. A hundred years. A hundred years. Then Micah does something else. He goes in, into multiple thousands of years. And then he says, as he goes on and continues, um, he, he goes from this place to uh, uh, where, when Babylon is coming into this great battle that's coming. Uh, listen to verses 11 and 12. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let your eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand His plan, that He's gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. What He's saying is, he, he, I, I, love, I love how the Bible does this. I love how, especially the Old Testament prophets, they see the coming of the Messiah. They see the, the battles and stuff, the coming of the Messiah is this mountain. And then they see... They don't see the valley of the church age and where we're at, but then they see past it to the, the, the great, great day. This day, whenever God gathers all the people that are against the Jewish nation, against the Jewish people, he's going to gather them all together. They think they're coming there to destroy the Jewish people, and God's like, I brought y'all here to destroy you. That's what I did, and that's what I'm going to do. And so this is the great battle that's coming in Armageddon. This is the great time when all of the nations that have this, this anti-Semitic view and they don't like the Jews are coming up to rise up against them. So Micah, be sure, he's, he's sure and explains this. And then he says in verse 13, Arise and thresh, O, da o daughter of Zion. He's saying, I'm going to then use Jerusalem. I'm going to use the people of God to display my judgment. So first he says, there is judgment from the world that's going to be brought onto my people. And then, but don't worry, because one day after the Messiah has come, in this place, the Messiah is going to show up. And then after the Messiah shows up, I'm going to use my people again to display my judgment. So he says, I'm going to first make you a display. Then I'm going to use you to display my glory and my judgment and who I am once again. And then Micah goes into this beautiful picture into who Jesus is. Because he, he's kind of going through this prophecy and we see it almost ebbing and flowing from uh, there's a battle coming, there's a Savior coming, and then there's a bigger battle coming. And let me tell you more about this Savior. Listen to what he says in chapter 5. Um, he's talking about the Messiah that's come. Uh, he's, he, he goes through the first six verses. He, in verse number two, But you, O Bethlehem, Euphrata, you are too, uh, who are little among the nations and the clans of Judah, 
from you shall come forth from me who is the one to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. You know what that one is, right? That's the one to you, Bethlehem, Euphrates, the one that is right here in this specific spot. That's the one the ruler's coming from. That's the one the king's going to be born in. You know, when the wise man went to Jerusalem um, to find out where the king was born, I don't know if they just like quit following the star. I don't know if they're like, oh, we're going to assume he's in the capital city because he's the king and ended up having to go to Bethlehem. They're like, what, this little, this little town <laughs> held up in Bethlehem? I'm like, you guys were astronomers, but you didn't read the book very well because the book said that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, Euphrates. You should have gone there first. Uh, but instead, they probably thought about, you know, where, where is logical for the king to be, right? But in this little spot is where the king is going to be born. So Micah begins to expound on that and, extor- and, and explain that more and more and more. Then he talks about, he, he talks about where the Messiah is going to be. And then he talks about uh, how the restoration is going to come from verses 7 all the way down to verses 15, verse 15. He sees uh, an immediate restoration whenever um, the remnant returns. He sees a revival taking place. He sees a renewal of the people's hearts back to God, and it's, it's a joyful tone. It's, it's this excitement that we're going to be okay. God is going to take care of us. He's going to walk us through this. He's going to show us who He is, and we are going to be used by Him again. So in that, it, it almost to me sounds like the points of a sermon. And then as Micah gets to this point, so he's talked about the destruction. He's talked about why the destruction is coming and why, why it's here. He's talked about the Savior that's going to release them from that, and he gets this joyful tone. And then, as every good preacher does, whenever you start to see a glimpse of what's to come, you begin to draw your eyes back to today. So he now brings it back to the present moment. And you know what he says in chapter 6 and 7? What should we do today? Repent. That's what he says. You need to live your life today like God is watching you, like he is here. He returns back, uh, you know, wouldn't you guess it? Most of these prophets at some point will yell out the word repent. Mostly because they know, listen, a man whose heart is drawn to God and close to God will say, there's no better place. Come back to God. Stop falling for lesser things and come to the Lord himself. Repent, 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 repent. Please repent. The one that sees God working is always going to say, get your heart right with God so that you can see him working because he is the blessing. It's not about what you can gain in this world. It's about who can be around and who you can see at work. It's so much greater. I can't tell you how much greater God is than all the things the world has to offer. I can't explain it. He's, he's that much better. I, I watched a, a video this past week of this lady who was a, um, uh, she was a, uh, involved with all these false religions, Wiccan and like witchcraft, all kinds of crazy things. And she was also, uh, she also had all these like mindfulness exercises and all these kind of crazy things. And so she got saved. She got rid of all that stuff in her life. And she said, here's what I re- recognize. She said, I got rid of all the books on uh, yoga and like everything. She said, anything, and like, I'm not against flexibility, okay? Do your flexibility stuff. She said, but what was happening was I was hearing that when I was stressed out, I needed to do these counting exercises. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to follow these breathing things. I need to follow this. She said, and then I thought, you know what? I just need to think about Jesus. She said, I don't need any of this other stuff. I don't need what this world is going to offer me. I just, need to, I just need to put my mind and my heart on Jesus. He's all I need. And what she found out was 
That's right. All we need is Jesus. Now, I'm not saying to cope and maybe don't, you know, count to 10 backwards or whatever. But in those moments when you're counting to 10 backwards, I'll tell you this. I am never, I'm, I cannot think of a time that I am actively sinning if I am in good prayer. I can't imagine it. I can't do, I can't do them at the same time. It's like, it's, it's like what I talked about last Sunday on Thanksgiving and thankfulness. You can't be thankful about something truly and angry about something truly at the same time. It's, it's two different parts of your brain and they can't coexist at the same time. They can't, they can't both be sharing information and you accepting them, one or the other. It's Jesus or it's nothing. You can add all kinds of stuff to your life, but Micah is yelling now at this point as a pastor, it is time to repent. It's time to come back to him. He's too good to keep behind our, our, our veil. He's too good to not think about. He's too good to not put in our lives. He speaks of a few things in chapters 6 and 7. He speaks of their sins. This is what keeps them from God. Then he, t- then he talks about their, their sorrows or their sadnesses. It's causing us, that should cause us to yearn for God. Are you sad? Then that should cause you to yearn for God. I, I, I'll tell you, I've been through tragedy, right? We lose somebody we love. And guess what? You can do one of two things. You can dip into sadness, and that sadness will probably result in one th- you're going to yearn for something. So what's going to happen. You're going to want, I need something to fix this. I need something to heal this brokenness. I have a wound, and I need it to be healed. And what happens is you should yearn then for the presence of God. Micah explains that. He says, listen, you're going to have, your sins are the re- what keeps you from God. Your sadness is, should bring you to God. And then he talks about the Savior again. And this is who brings us back to God. He talks about that uh, in, in chapters uh, 6 and 7. And then in chapter 7, uh, he, I love how he says um, in verse number 1 of chapter 7, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Um, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and I think it was... It may have been Obadiah, it may have been Amos, I can't remember which prophet it was, but talked about summer fruit. Summer fruit is the last fruit. It's the final harvest. And it gives indication for one of two things. One, the end of a season, and, and two, uh, the end of a message. Micah is saying, the time is now. This is it. We are, we are to the point where there's no more words to say. There's no more things to do. There's no more... And so Micah wraps it up in chapter 7. I want to read the last few verses from verses 18 to verse number 20, uh, the very, very final part of Micah's words. Um, he wraps up in this tone of just hope. There is a, a day coming. Listen to what he says. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniqu- in, uh, iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You know, there is something about walking out of a room with that message. There's something about walking out of a gathering of believers hearing the message of absolute hope. God is not going to go back on his word. 
He will not. It's against his character to go back on his word. He's not going to do that. You know what he's going to say? I love you. And you're going to say, well, yeah, but I've messed up. And he said, oh, you don't understand how steadfast my love is. And it's like, well, okay, so your, your love stands the test of time, but does it stand the test of my, of my sin? Oh, my, my steadfast love endures. Well, what, how long? Forever. Forever. You can't, get, you can't outrun it. You can't outlast it. You can't uh, outsin it. You can't, you can't get out of his love. You can't do it. And he says he will restore steadfast love to Abraham, faithfulness to Jacob. I love how uh, the, in verse number 19, he will again have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Man, I'll tell you something that I'm thankful for today. I am thankful that every mistake I have ever made, every mistake I will ever make, all of the mistakes in my life, every, and I say mistakes, let me, let me, let me not soften that. Every time I have sinned against a holy God, every time I have made a decision, whether passively or aggressively or, um, or, or, or knowingly or unknowingly, I have fallen away from the glory and the statutes of the Lord. Anytime I have done that, anytime I will ever do that, I have put my faith and trust in the one who was born and, and heralded in Bethlehem and the one who came and was the Savior that died, and he cast all of those sins so far into the depths of the sea, humanity can't get down and bring them up. They can't. I hope and pray that... Um, our lives, you know, Micah's story, Micah's words end with these words. His, his whole prophecy ends with this note. God's steadfast love is good. Man, it's good. I, I love, I, I, I hate, there's a, there's a love-hate relationship I have with funerals of those who have gone to be with the Lord that are, that are believers. Because most of the time in those, it's, their life has told a story and it ended with God's love didn't end on this day. God's love, God's, God's revelation of his glory began on that day. That's, that's what we've experienced. There's something about our lives. I want my life, I want the last thing that people hear me say is God's love endures forever, ever. It does, you cannot, you cannot outrun, you can't get away from it. He's too good. He's too amazing and too beautiful in all of his ways. I want to encourage you today, um, live your life as though God's steadfast love and compassion endures forever. Let's pray.